At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm your host, Richard Nelson. One of the pressing questions of the day regards human identity, particularly sexual identity. Is there an inherent right to define one's own identity? And should there be limits to sexual expression of one's identity? Joining us to help unpack this issue and to answer some of these questions is Dr. Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College in their Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. He's the author of the important book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and The Road to Sexual Revolution. Carl, welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Rich. Boy, that title is a mouthful. Um, there's, a, there's a lot there. And just before we began the program, I um, really just learned about you maybe less than two years ago, uh, read your book about a year ago, and was very, very impressed that um, you're able to tackle such a large topic, a challenging topic. But again, the title is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. Um, Carl, many of the listeners and viewers know that Commonwealth Policy Center has addressed much of the fallout related to the sexual revolution as as they relate in the public policy arena, as they relate to politics. And I'm talking about abortion policy. I'm talking about kids that don't have a home because of broken marriages or parents that don't want to raise them. And now we're talking about transgenderism, which is going mainstream, uh, which is a rarely new development. The idea for your book began with your curiosity about the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, and that somehow that thought has become reasonable in today's society. What's happened in the last few years, even, to bring this thought into the mainstream. Uh, Just a few years ago, Carl, we would have not imagined that would have been a reasonable thought. And I think you you mentioned in your book that if your grandfather had had that idea posed to him, he would have uh, found it absurd. Yeah, I think uh, there are a number of factors that play into the story of the success of the transgender lobby. Uh, Part of it, I think, is the immediate political story that can be told. uh, The Uh, The LGBTQ alliance has proved a remarkably effective political movement, a remarkably effective lobby group, if you like. Uh, And the binding together of transgenderism with uh, the rights for lesbian and gay uh, people was a a move of political genius, really. We can unpack that perhaps later on. I think it's a marriage of pure convenience in many ways. But it allowed the transgender lobby to piggyback off what was already a pretty well-established, effective political uh, movement. Uh, The longer story, I think, is that transgenderism represents, I I think it represents the the manifestation or or, or the, the latest stage of two particular streams within Western culture. One stream, I think, is the increasing uh, authorization or authority we grant to inner feelings such that if I feel that I'm a woman, that is who I am 
really am. Uh, our bodies have ceased to be the essence of who we are, and our psychological states have become uh, the essence of who we are. And secondly, I think there's a stream of what you know, one might call broadly transhumanism. And that is that our culture, particularly our technological culture, is very enamored with uh, the transcendence of self that we see our physical bodies, our physical uh, limitations, uh, something mm -hmm. to be transcended and transgenderism is is part of that and perhaps the more uh, obvious aspects of transhumanism are talk you get occasion about you know beating mortality or you know, downloading our brains into a computer system or some of these are what we typically associate with transhumanism i think transgenderism is part of that culture too it's it's essentially arguing that the human body is at, at best raw material out of which we can make ourselves at worst, a hindrance to us being ourselves and something that needs to be technologically transcended in order to allow full self-realization. That's a new development that we look inside ourselves for as far as who we are instead of looking outside ourselves as to uh, who we are. In your book, Carl, you trace thoughts of the major thinkers in Western history, uh, thinkers like Rousseau, Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, and Freud, and how their ideas and writings contributed to the idea of the modern self. You did a brilliant job, by the way. I'm going to give you a plug for your book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a thick book, academic in, in many respects, but it is a fantastic book, really doing a good job explaining how we got to where we are. Carl, my question is, is where were the Christian thinkers at the time of Marx and Darwin and Freud? Was there a Christian response to their ideologies that they were promoting? Well, I, I think it's, that's an interesting question. First of all, I would say that, that Christian thinkers are not immune to the same kind of social conditions that are uh, leading Marx, Darwin, Nietzsche, etc., to reflect on the world around them. I mean, Rousseau might provide a more obvious example. When Rousseau is engaged in his, uh, in his thinking, first and second discourses, and his, his real wrestling with what is the role of the feelings in constituting who I am, Jonathan Edwards is writing his work on the religious affections. You have the Methodist revivals. So mm -hmm. there are broad patterns of history from which Christianity is not isolated, and our own thinkers are responding to similar social circumstances and conditions. When it comes to responses to Marx and Nietzsche, who I think are the key players really in, in the development of the modern self, what's interesting about Marx and Nietzsche is that they're really far more significant today than they ever were in their own day. So it doesn't surprise me that Christian thinkers in the 19th century and early 20th century are not gauge, engaging in, in great depth or, or with using you know, tremendous brain power to, to critique Marx and Nietzsche, because Marx and Nietzsche weren't really forces at that particular point. Marx and Nietzsche became much more significant, I think, as one of the better term, philosophers of existence and culture in the 20th century, particularly in the latter part of the 20th century and on into the 21st. So if you're looking at the early 20th century, Hermann Barvink, the Dutch theologian, has a few things to say uh, about Nietzsche here and there. But by and large, uh, these thinkers were not seen to be the threats they have since become in their own day and generation. Fascinating. Fascinating. 
You say in your book that the framework for identity in wider society is deep-rooted, powerful, and fundamentally antithetical to the kind of identity promoted as basic in the Bible. I think we would agree that the biblical worldview shaped uh, the thinking of the West, not just how uh, we think of ourselves, but it has shaped how we interact uh, with culture, uh, what our role is in culture. Clearly, there were defined roles of men and women. We had an understanding of marriage. But if you could, uh, tell us, what, what is the biblical idea of selfhood? I mean, the basics is, the most basic thing is that human beings are made in the image of God, and therefore who we are is actually grounded in something that transcends this creation. Uh, the idea of developing any fundamental notion of what it means to be a human being that does not take into account the fact that we are created, dependent uh, upon God, both for our being and for the nature of our being, uh, is, is simply not something that, that Christians can countenance. We're made in the image of God. Secondly, we're relational beings. Uh, we are placed in creation in, within a network of dependencies and obligations. It's very interesting that in the creation narrative, the only thing that isn't good is the fact that Adam's on his own. He, he needs a helpmate. He needs a, a woman to interact with. Adam truly becomes Adam in a way in the Bible when Eve is created. We tend mm-hmm. to think today of ourselves as isolated units. I am me. And I may or may not wish to enter into contractual relationships with other people around me. The Bible doesn't teach that we are like that. The Bible teaches that human beings are born into a network of dependencies, fundamentally upon God, but also towards each other. So I'm going to go back to transgenderism, and you alluded to this uh, a few moments ago, but... Uh, In your book, you say that transgenderism prioritizes inner convictions over biological reality, that it separates gender from sex, given that it drives a wedge between chromosomes and how society defines being a man or a woman. Now, transgenderism is being promoted largely by academia. It's our universities, uh, college campuses here in this country. Yet this idea that you can transcend your biological sex, a fixed biological scientific reality, um, is a contradiction. So, so how does academia reconcile this contradiction that a man uh, can become a woman or a woman can become a man, even though the biological categories is objectively true? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I think it connects to the grip which certain strands of theory have come to have on uh, particularly humanities departments in institutions of higher education, though it's spreading to other departments too. The idea that being a man or being a woman is a matter of social performance is very deeply embedded in gender theory. Judith Butler, the great, uh, the great grandmother of all gender theorists, I, said, you know, I, th- I still think Judith Butler is the great gender theorist, argues that you know, being uh, that, that femininity is essentially a performance. It's a socially constructed performance. It is behaving in a certain way. Society expects you to behave mapped somewhat arbitrarily onto the physiological makeup of the body. The biology of the body is, is made into something significant uh, by the performances that are attached to it. Now, one of the reasons why that grips the imagination is, of course, it, it contains a certain amount of truth. It's like Christian heresies. 
the thing that makes Christian heresies uh, powerful and persuasive quite often is the fact that a certain aspect of the truth is present. And it's very clear that uh, there is a, a degree of performativity in what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. You know, being a man in Texas is very different from being a man in Seoul, South Korea, or being a man in Berlin, Germany, or Cardiff, Wales. Uh, we know that the way we think about men and women, what we expect from men and women, there is a, a, a decent amount of social constructed expectation there. Mm -hmm. Sleight of hand, of course, is saying that because aspects of how we construct manhood and womanhood are socially conditioned, socially constructed, therefore, biology has no significance whatsoever. That's the problem. And then when you tie that to a culture where, for example, uh, we now we now typically think of, of sex as, as non-reproductive, that yeah. we tend to think of sex as, you know, we'll talk about you know, pregnancy as a problem or pregnancy as an unfortunate side effect of having sex. Once you start to think as a culture about sex as, as recreation and not yeah. as having a central reproductive function, then really the one performance, we might say, of men and women that is distinct and non-negotiable, that is women get pregnant and gestate. Once that mm -hmm. becomes a problem or becomes marginal, then inevitably we find ourselves in a position where highly intelligent people are asked the question, what is a woman? Mm -hmm. And they are incapable of answering it. So yeah. I think what you have is an academic theory that has got legs in the wider culture, partly because of the way we have come to think about women's bodily functions vis-a-vis -vis sex and reproduction at this point in time. This issue of transgenderism going mainstream is a real issue here in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, where our state legislature just last week enacted a bill, passed a bill into law that would prevent minor children from uh, undergoing hormone therapy or gender transition surgery. And it, it also prohibits the teaching of LGBT identities in K through 5. It says that the bathrooms in the public schools need to be used by children of the appropriate biological sex, boys in the boys' restrooms, girls in the girls' restrooms, and locker rooms for that matter. And it's gotten a lot of pushback. It is getting a lot of criticism from mainstream media. Academia, this, the commissioner of education in Kentucky, harshly criticized that bill. In fact, I debated a couple of activists last night on a public television program. But the pushback is real. And it seems, Carl, to me that objective truth, objective reality is on our side. Those that hold a biblical worldview that's more of comment. I'm going to go into this direction, though. You, you mentioned the sexual revolution, and I find a lot of contradictions with it. As you were you were talking about pregnancy as being a surprise, like oh my goodness, we a couple has sex and they find themselves pregnant, and instead of it being a joy between a couple, a, a married couple, it is a burden. It is a crisis. It is something to avoid. But there are other contradictions as well that we see with the sexual revolution. One is that when the sexual revolution was underway, I remember the term 20-some years ago, we were warned about the bedroom police and that nobody should care about what one does in their private personal lives. 
And now today, sexual identity has become a public badge of honor, if you will. How do you reconcile those two ideas? It is an interesting uh, reversal. I mean, on one level, I'm very sympathetic to wanting to keep the government out of the bedroom. You, you know, that there's a sense of it's private. Uh, and there is also a sense in whatever my neighbors get up to in the privacy of their bedroom doesn't directly affect me. But of course, there you're talking about behavior. There you're talking about behavior between consenting adults. When you move into the realm of what we're facing today, we're talking about identity. Now, it's not that those two things are unconnected, but the political discourse about sex is not sex about behavior. It's, it's sex conceived of as identity. And once you start to think that your identity is grounded in your desires, then it's not what's going on in the bedroom that is the most important thing. It's whether you're allowed to express uh, those desires as legitimate in public that comes down to whether you're allowed to be yourself in public. Yeah. The difference might be this, you know, to sort of to, to, to point to what I'm thinking about here. There's homosexuality as sexual activity, and there's homosexuality as desire. I was talking to somebody in the last 12 months who commented to me that once upon a time they'd been bi and now they're straight. And it was clear to me as I talked to this person that I didn't think they'd ever had any sexual experience in their life. They were simply talking about their inner feelings and the direction they felt that their sexual desire was going in. Once you say that sexual desire is identity, then laws about how you can express that sexual uh, desire cease to be laws about behavior and become laws about who is and is not a legitimate person. And that's why you know, the most private act that usually occurs between two people is now one of the biggest public policy issues in the West, because we've switched from sex as behavior and laws that were built around sex as behavior to thinking of sex as identity. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center, here with Carl Truman, who wrote a, uh, an important book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to unpack uh, Dr. Truman's comment uh, in just a moment, so stick with us. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. It's clear that the news media isn't always fair. In fact, there's lots of far-left bias and political gamesmanship. No surprise there. So if you're looking for a perspective that's grounded in the truth of Scripture and our nation's founding principles, then get plugged into CPC's resources. Sign up for our e-newsletter at CommonwealthPolicyCenter.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Commonwealth Policy Center. And we're on Twitter at CPC for Kentucky. Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson with the Commonwealth Policy Center here with Carl Truman, author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl, what you said just before the break really registered with me because last night I was debating the director of Kentucky's largest LGBT rights or, uh, organization, the Kentucky Fairness Campaign and then a representative from the ACLU. And we were defending that the debate was largely over whether or not the state legislature should have enacted a law that would prevent hormone therapy, puberty blockers, and transition surgeries of minors in the Commonwealth. And the opposition kept coming back to the point, or trying to make the case that you are erasing them, you are trying to deny that they exist, 
you are harming them, even leading some to suicide. I don't think that the science or the surveys or any of it bears out what they were saying, but it does hit an important point where there has been a move from sex as a behavior to sex as an identity. And I want to go back to where the transgender movement is right now. And that is to the point where we're told that children should be able to determine their own gender. I listened to a state senator uh, last week testify that they, she and her husband believe that their two-year-old, I'm going to repeat, a two-year-old was identifying with the opposite biological sex. Is this a bridge too far for most Americans? Are they waking up to this reality? Are they saying that this is, this is just nuts, for lack of a better way of putting it? There are certainly signs that that's the case. I mean, the thing about transgenderism, as opposed to other LGB issues, is that transgenderism is going to affect everybody because it comes with demands about pronouns in the workplace. It comes with demands about destroying women's private, uh, private spaces. Yeah, it's taking on a lot of enemies in the culture. It's taking on women's sports. Personally, I regard that as a relatively, you know, sports to me, they're entertainment, they're relatively trivial. Uh, yeah. But on the other hand, they're very important to some people. So it's going to be very, very difficult to to avoid transgenderism. It's, it's not a case of, well, I don't mind it as long as it's not in my backyard. This is going to be in everybody's backyard. So it is going to be changing the lives of an awful lot of people. Secondly, I think it is so counterintuitive that it's it has an inherent implausibility to it. Thirdly, I think most people know that children are impressionable, children are often confused, and children need to be protected from making decisions that are going to change the rest of their lives. It's why there is no state in the United States from the last time I looked, which was 48 hours ago, I think, there is no state in the United States that allows a child under 18 to get a tattoo. Why? Because we don't want them to permanently mark their skin. Now, Trust me on this. You know, a tattoo of a mermaid on a 10-year-old's chest is considerably less damaging than the removal of ovaries, the injection of alien hormones, the removal of sex organs. Yeah. Bottom line is we intuitively know that kids have to be protected from themselves. What we have at the moment are, I would say, evil lobby groups pushing a particular agenda, a naive frightened or well-meaning parents who don't have the knowledge to resist what's going on. Uh, And I think that's the problem. I'm relatively optimistic in the long run that we will see a big reversal on transgender issues. A couple of things make me optimistic on that front. Um, One, I think we will see more and more detransitioner narratives coming out. Nobody wants trans kids to suffer. Nobody wants trans kids to kill themselves. You know, my heart breaks when I hear some of the testimonies of these kids who are so confused. We need to be compassionate to them. My problem is that the, the solutions being proposed by the activists don't actually solve the problem. The suicide rate is not appreciably affected by transition. And I think what we'll see over a long period of time is that transitioning is not solving the problem. And I think we'll start to get more detransition narratives. Tragically, this will come at huge human costs. But ultimately, we'll have a, we will have a critical mass of detransition narratives 
that will tip things in the right way. The second way I think you could change is this. This is America. Money talks. The pharmaceutical, and I'm not a big pharmaceutical industry conspiracy theory guy, but it is a fact that the pharmaceutical industry is making lots and lots of money out of the transition. I think if you could find, if you could get legislation passed that lifted the statute of limitations on suing pharmaceutical companies and medical centers over trans treatment, you would see a sea change in attitude, maybe overnight, certainly within a very short period of time. Because if these people who know the science is bogus think yeah. that they could be sued 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, they're going to be a whole lot more cautious about doing it. And I would just add as a third thing, this part of me says, if you're a 25-year-old and you think you're a woman trapped in a man's body and you want to transition, part of me says, I disagree with you. I don't think it's going to solve your problem, but it's a free country. If you pay for it, your insurance company pays for it, that's fine. When it comes to minors and children, we have a moral obligation, not just as Christians, but as ordinary, decent human beings and citizens to protect kids from themselves. And that's why we must not be intimidated into silence by these very aggressive, very well-organized and very well-funded lobby groups. I want to go back to the sexual revolution. You said something profound in your book that pornography is part of the sexual revolution. Well, that's the obvious part. But the triumph of pornography is both evidence of the death of God and one of the means by which he is killed. And yet porn is everywhere in our society. Pornhub, it's this uh, website that has all kinds of traffic, taking in all kinds of money. So here's the question, very briefly. Does pornography need to be put to death for the reality of God to be brought back to life in our culture? If pornography contributed, and I'm saying that in figurative terms, that pornography led to the death of God. It is, uh, I think it was a playoff of what Nietzsche was saying. He, they, they killed God, right? The secularists, atheists kill God. Well, pornography is killing human beings. It is objectifying us. It is desensitizing us. It is doing great harm to us. So does something have to be done with pornography um, for the reality of God to be brought back to life in our culture? At a theoretical level, I would say absolutely. Practically, how do you do that? That's very difficult. Uh, but certainly, I think restrictions on pornography are important. You know, legally, how you do that, technically, technologically, how you do that, I don't know in this world. That's not my area. One thing I would say, though, is this. We need to start thinking about pornography less as a First Amendment freedom of speech and freedom of expression issue and more and more as a public health crisis. I think if we can shift the debate away from, well, hey, you know, we can't censor pornography because that's a restriction of First Amendment rights. We're always going to lose that argument. If we can start pointing to the very serious damage that is being done to bodies and to minds by pornography, maybe we stand a chance of being able to present a plausible legislative case for restrictions on pornography. The pornography on the web today, it's often violent. Uh, it's depraved. It involves real suffering to real people. It's connected to the sex trafficking industry. So I think we need to, to shift the, the public imagination on pornography away from freedom of speech and expression and towards public health crisis. 